that we just sang together about the depth of the love of God. What a great parallel in this parable that we will look at this morning about a God who loves us so deeply that we cannot understand why, why we would, could possibly gain any kind of reward from the sacrifice of what Christ did. We can't explain, but we just trust and know that his love is so deep for us. And this morning, we are going to finish up this series, Once Upon a Parable, in looking at just that and how the love that God has for us challenges us to do life differently. But I want to begin before we get into our parable this morning to welcome you to our gathering this morning. This is a time where we as believers, uh, a part of this faith family, come here together at venue to, to learn together and to, to worship together, but ultimately to study what it means to become a follower of Christ more effectively, what he calls us to, the depth and the level that he calls us to as his followers. Uh, this past week, uh, my family and I greatly missed being together with you. It was, it was a, a our, time, our family spent the week together out of town in much overdue time of rest and vacation, and so I greatly appreciate uh, that opportunity to just be with family, to rest our minds, and to, to truly just uh, rest uh, our spirits as we just spent time together, and it was a, a great time. I appreciate Dan uh, sharing last week, and, and I know that he did a great job in, con- in continuing to deliver the message about a king and a kingdom about a king and a kingdom that we have been studying for several weeks now. You know, I received several messages from several of you uh, saying that you really thought I needed to take an additional week of rest, and I'll just assume that was out of concern for my health and not just to, uh, to hear Dan uh, preach again. Uh, but, but seriously, at a place where our family, uh, just being very transparent with you, at a place where our family is at a major crossroads in respect to where God is leading us forward, it was a much-needed time together. I'm very thankful for that. But as we prepare to dive into the text this morning, and I kind of want us to get right into this passage, I want to remind you that we are looking at Christ's example of stories, how he taught in stories, and that we talked over the past few weeks that a parable is actually characterized by three things. Parables are very relevant stories that are contextualized to everyday life. So where Christ talked about fishers of men, they would have understand the fishing process and would have hooked that up with what it means to go after men, uh, to, to, be, to, to, to go out and to seek them for the kingdom. Uh, they're very relevant. When he talked about a farmer, they would have understood the cultivation process. And so these stories were very contextualized for their situations. They were also often created cultural irony in that many times Jesus would expose the opposite thinking about a kingdom by having them reveal the truth themselves. And so while they were living opposite the kingdom, kingdom, through their answers, they reveal the truths of the kingdom. But then we also talked about how the main concern of parables dealt with the kingdom of God and man's response to it. That, that though Christ taught in very simple, applicable terms, he was teaching about his kingdom and our response, how it should be to his kingdom. He revealed and concealed the message of a kingdom that he was creating. And in fact, they did not recognize it. We shared a couple of weeks ago, they wanted to know when the kingdom, what it would look like when he came. And he said, it's in your presence, it's in your midst. And he revealed to them the element, the basics of what the kingdom was. Last week, Dan shared with you about the posture of kingdom living and how it causes us to not be consumed by ourselves in this life. As, as a church, it causes us to not be consumed by ourselves, but to be consumed by the mission at hand. That that be what consumes our thoughts and our processes to proclaim the message of the kingdom 
a message that goes against the flow of the existing approach to church where we practice deep self-absorption as a church culture, but rather to humble ourselves before God and serve Him out of obedience. And we as a church culture today to not see church as a place to just be drawn in, but a launch point for missions. That what we consider church, the gathering, to be a place where we go from there and we launch out and we carry the message that we learn about, not a message that we have found perfection in ourselves and therefore we are worthy to go out, but to say, hey, we're a group of people who are all broken, who have been mended by the love that, Christ, that God showed us through his son Christ, and to go and to share that same message of hope to a world who does not have it. I love the, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. He, t- he was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, listen to this, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He recognized the need as he he was among the harvest. So Christ was not just spending his time among the found. He saw the need because he was out in the midst of the harvest. He connected with them because it said he had compassion for them. He saw how they were abused. He saw how they were being led astray and harassed. And he felt great compassion for them. And he recognized and and challenged his people that we have to pray to God for his movement. Pray for laborers to gather? No. He said, let's pray that God will will, will send the, the, the workers into the harvest to send them out into the harvest to work the fields because the harvest was plentiful. So this morning, I hope that we can spend our time together talking about what it looks like now to move from a posture of of the kingdom into a pursuit of that kingdom. Have you ever lost something that really deeply mattered to you? It's probably everybody in this room, you know, whether it be something that's very sentimental or something very practical like your wallet or uh, your keys. Uh, in fact, if you find a set after the service, they belong to my wife, if you'll just return them to her. Uh, you know, you lose your purse, your wedding ring, you know, or, or, or maybe a kid from time to time. And, and you know, you know parents, parents laugh because they've been there. You know, kids, kids are like Navy SEALs. I mean, they are here one second, and when you close your eyes, they are gone. Nowhere to be found. This past week, we had taken our girls down to the beach. And, and, and you know, on seeing my kids, you would think it would be absolutely impossible to lose them because I'm kind of a sunscreen czar. And, and so my kids kind of look like Casper the Ghost from all the sunscreen because I'm like, you know, even on myself, my goal when I come back from the beach is to not be able to be noticed that I've been to the beach. I'm kind of one of those guys. And so, so I had my kids really sunscreened up. You can spot them from the glare of the sun off of the sheen of their skin. And, and well, Emma had decided that she had had enough of swimming. We had both our girls, and most of the time swimming means I wade into the water, and and I hold both of them, and they put their legs up high enough where they're not touching the water, so they're actually just walking above the water uh, with my assistance. But Emma had had enough of swimming in the water, and so I took her to the beach, and I watched her run up to the areas where our chairs were. You know, she was, I watched her. She went on her way, and I turned around and went back into the water and looked back, and she wasn't there anymore. I mean, she had just... Uh, she had, this is revelation to my wife. She had just ran back and, uh, and, and, and she was not there. I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't know where she went. And I was thinking, okay, she just left me. 
I turned around, went back into the water with our other daughter, and now she's nowhere to be found. So like all parents, I get a little knot in my stomach, and you kind of think, okay, uh, you know, what are we going to do now? And immediately I began walking back up looking for her, and, and you know, she actually, like, like most times, was still there. She had just kind of tucked herself in behind a chair in the, sh- in the shade and was just kind of playing in the shade. Now, I had Anna with me, my other daughter, and she loves the water and was having an absolutely incredible time. But how absurd would it be for me to say, you know what, if Emma just doesn't happen to pop back up, you know, we still have one and she likes to swim and and all, and and we got the rest of our family, and so no big deal. We'll just, maybe she'll be there when we get back. If not, we've got twins, so that's, you get two. So one, we'll keep one. And of course we wouldn't be like that. We would rip the place up in search of our daughter, probably lose the other one in the process because you forget about her while you're looking for the other one. But, But, you know, in a similar fashion this morning, As we complete our discussion on parables and most importantly the kingdom, Jesus is going to tell us three parables that I think will teach us about a kingdom pursuit. With the posture that we talked about last week in mind as our guide, how do we pursue a life of mission to spread the gospel of the kingdom? Scriptures teach us that the word of God will not return void. So what I want us to do together, if you'll turn to Luke 15, and this morning I want us just to read through Luke 15. Hear the stories as Jesus teaches them. Hear them through the the filter of a kingdom approach to the gospel. And let's learn how we are called to pursue this type of life. So we're just going to take Luke 15, and I want us just to work our way down through the Scripture. And then we'll come back and, and see exactly some applicable things about that. So Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. And the Scriptures say, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to be one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still 
A long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, you know, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was hungry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So right off the bat, right out of the chute in, in chapter 15, I believe we cannot get a clear understanding of all three of these parables without grasping the context of verse one. Look back, it says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And also the Pharisees and the scribes apparently were there because they were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, tax collectors and sinners have have drawn near to Jesus. Okay, now the intensity of what a tax collector was has been decreased because we learned in Sunday school growing up of the most prominent tax collector, Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. And that's who a tax collector is to us. Our picture of him is of a harmless little man, you know, sitting behind a homemade lemonade stand in town, trying to make some money by taking 30 bucks when he was only due 25 bucks. Very harmless, probably picked on, obviously because of his stature, no authority at all. But listen to this. During this time, Rome is basically ruling the world. Okay, Rome is the most powerful a, a, a country government that there is and Rome was just absolutely ruthless in their governing. There are accounts of Rome conquering cities and taking 20,000 uh, uh, men and women and children and crucifying them along the road leading into the city. And so as people traveled, they would see the suffering people. I mean, they were ruthless in their pursuit of conquering. Now, in order to conquer nations such as this, Rome had to have a very massive army, obviously, with massive provisions and with massive supplies. And so when they would conquer a city, they hire these mercenaries, they would create these armies to continue to fuel their conquering, that they, were, that they were going across the land. And so now we see why a tax collector might be so despised, because how do you pay for an army? You, you charge taxes to pay for the supplies for the army. So many of, of the taxpayers who would see Jesus spending time with these tax collectors were actually funding the price of their persecution. So these people were actually 
paying the bill for persecution to continue. So you see that they were being, being they, were, they were so despising of these tax collectors. So Jesus is being surrounded by tax collectors, despised people, people who were seen as murderers, people who were seen as villains, aiding the oppression of the people. And so you can see their, their misunderstanding. How could a fair and just God spend time and spend a meal with people who were very unjust and who were very oppressive? But not only was he surrounded by tax collectors, but there's also sinners drawing near. Now, when you hear sinner in this context, let's don't mistake this for everyday people. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. You have to realize that in this reading that sinner here would be a group of people that would be marked by their sinfulness. They would be understood as these people are sinners. You know, recognize that we're all sinners. We understand that there's a coming Messiah that's been prophesied. But now these people, are, their lifestyle is a lifestyle characterized by sin, prostitutes, strippers, slave traders, tax collectors, and possibly even some who were said to be cursed physically because of their sin. So there may have been some who they said, this person, what, what, you know, you, you read through the New Testament and oftentimes when there was a physical ailment among someone, they, you know, who sinned, this man or his, or his father? And so these were people who probably, uh, uh, you know, there were some who maybe physically had been said to be a sinner because of their, of their problem that they had physically. So Jesus was with the outcast. He was spending time with the people that no one else liked. Now, Pharisees and teachers of the law are also there. And like Pharisees and scribes do, they were grumbling because that's their main form of communication. And so they're grumbling here. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. Now, the Pharisees, as we know, were the super Christians. I mean, they have it all together. In fact, they function as if they had gained favor from God because of their moral uprightness. So they live life assuming that, hey, we, we've, we have risen to a higher level because of our good deeds and our uprightness. They were considered among themselves the elite of that area. And not only are they gathered around with the others, but they're making some direct accusations at Christ. They were noticing Jesus was with the sinners and Jesus was with the tax collectors around him. But listen to this. They noticed he was receiving them and having a meal with them. So this is not just Jesus walking the streets and the masses of sinners and tax collectors following behind him, but this is intentional Jesus spending intentional time sharing a meal with these people. Not only were they despised, but nobody one would even, to where no one would even spend any time with them nor acknowledge their presence, but Jesus is gathering around the table with them, sharing a meal with them. Jesus was approached constantly by people but here he is spending very intimate and personal time with them. And to me, what we see here, what is being created is a community that I believe is very similar to what I believe is the heart of the mission for the church today. Because you see, the grace of, the grace of God, his grace and love, which is unmeasurable and uncomprehensible, is, is the kind of grace that creates a unique community unlike the world has ever seen. Tax collectors and sinners can hang out with the righteous. Tax collectors and sinners can spend time with the, with the Messiah. This is a grace that is beyond anything the world had ever seen. But Jesus not only met with them, but he welcomed them into community. He shared a meal with them in their home, which was a very intimate interaction. This is no longer target center for Jesus. This is people he loves 
and sees and recognizes their brokenness, how they are despised by culture, and yet he engages them. And I'm afraid that we as the church have created communities centered on religion and not the gospel. I'm afraid often our church culture is centered around religion and not the gospel. So we find ourselves with the desire to reach out to the lost, but not, but not by welcoming them into community. They remain a target in the distance, inferior to who we are because of our uprightness, much like the Pharisees, have elevated us to a place above them. So while we love and care for them, they remain a target to us, the objects by which we can accomplish the missional obligation that Christ has placed on us, and we do so for our benefit. I think it's important here to distinguish what I mean between religion and the gospel. Religion teaches that I obey, therefore I am accepted. With this teaching comes a very legalistic approach to our faith. Through this teaching, we're responsible for cleaning ourselves up, obeying all the rules, and then being accepted by Christ as righteous. And at the point at attempting to create our own righteousness, we see a hierarchy established among the church over who's better than who. At what level of righteousness, at what level of deeds and acts have we elevated ourselves to? We're better than this because, you know, thank goodness we're not like that person because I've done this list of things and I pursued this list of things. And we find ourselves then that the gauge of acceptance in community is through how well we obey and how good our works are and not the greatness of the sacrifice of our God. So religion is very much teaches I obey, therefore I am accepted. But on the flip side, the gospel teaches that I am accepted, therefore I obey. Then we find ourselves recognizing that we are accepted just like the sinners, just like the tax collectors are. We are accepted and because of him loving and accepting us, then we desire to obey his ways. A reaction to the to the place that we have recognized that we are loved by him no matter what. We are accepted by him because of what Christ did. God finds himself pleased in us because he is pleased in his son Jesus. And so when, we, when our lives interact with that grace, then we find ourselves, find a belief of being accepted and because of that we obey. We fall in love with the one who can see beyond our sins and love us. And because of such great love, we obey him. And then what we see happen is our desire to obey and serve is a response to this understanding of Christ, but the gauge of righteousness remains the same. It's no longer determined by our works. No longer do my works determine my acceptance, but my acceptance was sealed at the cross and is no longer a point of separation. It is the fruit of my understanding of the love and grace that God has for me. And I am terribly afraid that if we as the church do not pursue the kingdom the way in which God is leading his church, then we will continue to fail at reaching the tax collectors and the sinners. I have a horrible fear at that. Tim Keller, who is a writer I, I, I enjoy reading, he once said, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. <clears throat> the kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to our contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The lynches and liberated or the broken and marginal, they avoid church. That can only mean one thing. 
If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus did, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. I think it's so important that we recognize as a church that we have got to just, just look at what Christ calls the church to be. And so before we even process the message of these parables, may you and I be challenged to analyze our own lives and ask ourselves, how committed are we to kingdom living? Not to the concept of kingdom living, but to living out the kingdom the way that Christ calls us to. Do we recognize that we are loved and accepted by God because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross? I'm afraid many of you today, probably many in this room, probably carry around a lot of guilt and shame. And because of this, you feel unworthy, unaccepted, and unloved. Your works have failed, and because of that, you do not feel accepted. But I want to tell you, your acceptance was accomplished at the cross and is no longer an issue. You can stop trying to earn acceptance because it is impossible. You cannot do enough to be accepted by God. The only thing we can do is accept his grace and his love. Second, does the level of your love for God motivate you to good works? Because of this love relationship, are you motivated to do something with your life for him? Outside of just a legalistic approach to some do's and don'ts, do you want to serve him out of this love for him? You know, Carmen and I have been married uh, going on nine years. Uh, you know, it's been determined and sealed, and we are married, and it's recorded at the courthouse, and, 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 and it's official. But if that was the extent of our relationship, you know, are we truly in love? If, if we never talk, never show affection to each other, never act on our love for each other, then just how deep is the love that we share? It's very shallow. It's, it's contractual. We are in a contractual agreement made nine years ago, <clears throat> but our relationship is very surface. And in the same way in our churches today, our relationship with Christ must mirror the same thing. Many of, you, many of you have had a moment when you've entered relationship. You've had that moment where you've entered relationship with Christ, but you've never your, offered your life to be completely used by him however he may choose. You've never offered your resources. You've never offered your time, your family, the blessings that God has given you. You've never offered those to him to be used by him for the benefit of his kingdom. And I'm afraid we are seeing the mission of Christ as optional. And we have to look this morning to see, do we look at the mission of Christ as optional or as an absolute that his followers desire to engage? Jesus says, if any man were to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This morning, I believe we are challenged to no longer form our view of church by religion, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that calls us not to just come, but to go. To, to not give of our excess, but to give him everything for the sake of the gospel. Whether that mean money or time or resources. To not just give him the leftovers, but to give him the first fruits. Everything that we have to be used for his kingdom. To live life with a conviction for the four and a half to five million lost people in order that they may hear the name of Jesus Christ. That that mean that much to us. That the spreading of his message means more to us than any earthly gains. And so from these three parables this morning, I think we learn three characteristics of kingdom pursuit. Looking at the first parable, the parable of lost sheep, I think we learn that a characteristics of kingdom pursuit is that it is relentless. It's very relentless. If you look back through verses 4 through 7, we get this picture here. You know, sheep would be like a small business. We see small business. We, some of you are small business owners. 
This would be your small business. The hundred sheep would be a very major asset for the owner. And being the shepherd is a major undertaking because you are protecting the assets of your business. So with 100 sheep and you only lose 1% of your assets, you just let them go, right? That's a pretty good return. You're, you're keeping 99% of your assets. And you would never risk the safety and the comfort of the 99 for one sheep that was lost, right? But what we learn from this parable is that for the shepherd, he would put others working for him. It's not to say that he would abandon the flock. Oftentimes with this many sheep, he would have others working with him. But the shepherd himself, Jesus said, would leave the 99 and he would go look for the one lost sheep. Now listen, I think it's interesting this parable that he chooses and this animal he chooses because sheep are not that smart. I mean, if, if you look and read and study sheep, which I, I don't, but for this purpose I have, uh, they are easy to be attacked by predators. You know, they, are, they, are, they, have, they have, you know, a real intimidating characteristics, you know, curly, furry hair and a bah. That's what they have. That's their mechanism. And so they're easily attacked by predators. And the interesting thing about sheep is that even though they aren't attempting necessarily always to wander away, they act like anything but that. Because, you know, they will continue to, to, to do their, their uh, cry and indicating their location all the while running in a different direction from the flock. Totally in danger, totally isolated. If there is green grass over a cliff, they, they have no filter. They, see, they don't see cliff, they see green grass. And so to them, in their, their minds, you know, they think green grass equals good or good, whatever they think. I don't know how they think, you know, they're just sheep, you know. So they, so they go over the cliff, they, they, no, no, no filter, go over and they find themselves in their death. And in our life, we oftentimes find ourselves with the same characteristics. And I want to tell you, if you find yourself feeding your soul anywhere besides with Christ, then you are a sheep on a ledge about to fall to your ruin. If you find your soul feeding on anything other than Christ. So a shepherd would go after the sheep and when he found him, he placed it on his shoulders and he would bring it back to the flock. Now from the actions of the shepherd, we see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of a God who relentlessly pursues his creation with his grace and love. And in return, we are called as his church to leave the comfort of the 99 to go and to look for the one. That's our desire. That should be what we seek to accomplish. This may mean abandoning traditions and programs and schedules in order to reach the lost. And if so, so be it. The church is not called to form an institution. The, the church is called to go find the one. We're not called to be content with 99% success rate. We are called as the church to go after the one. My prayer for our church is that we find ourselves as Christ did, hungry for the lost, willing to radically carry out his mission, to make very radical choices in our life to serve, to be willing to trade the model of what church is supposed to look like by our culture standards and instead take this book and become the people that the God of this book calls us to be. To no longer form our thoughts on what church is supposed to, is supposed to look like because of what we see others doing, but to form our view of what church is to look like because this book calls us to be the people that Christ died for, his bride, his church. To me, I find myself just absolutely horrified that millions and millions and millions and millions of people do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That should be something that as followers of him, 
who love the things that Christ loves should be something that just taunts us. We who are relentlessly pursued by Jesus Christ should relentlessly take the gospel to those around us as we seek the kingdom. But I think there's a second characteristic we learn from the second parable. And that's that the characteristics of a kingdom pursued is that it is diligent. Verses 8 through 10, we see a lady who had nine coins and, and, and misses one and she tears the house up, lights a candle, looks for it, find it. We've talked in weeks past that the gospel message is often a process in someone's life. That sometimes it takes a season for someone to truly encounter Jesus Christ. In the parable of the lost coin, we find a woman who loses one of ten coins and she diligently searches for it until she finds it. She lights the candle, sweeps the house, and just as she rejoices as her hard work pays off in the finding of the coin, heaven rejoices on the repentance of one who was lost. There's a party thrown for that. And as I think about the gospel being diligent, and continuing to search for those who are lost, I see no such urgency among our churches today. I, I don't see the same urgency that, that we see Christ. Now listen, this is not somebody just sharing these words. This is Jesus Christ who understands the process of the gospel, who is the center point of the gospel, who both sides of the Old, the Old and the New Testament rush at Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection. This is him telling the church the urgency of way, the way we should live life. We should live it out of people who rejoice when we find someone who is lost. And as I think about that, I just see no such urgency among the people in our churches today. I don't think that the best strategy we can have as the church seeking to find the one that is lost is to spend all of our time gathered together and so little of our lives scattered among the lost. I just don't think that that's the best church strategy because to me, that's not diligence, that's complacency. We're very much content with the 99, but scriptures teach us that heaven rejoices when we find the one. I don't think the best strategy to engage a lost world is to create a Christian subculture where our families never interact with worldly people. Jesus Christ constantly placed himself in positions where he interacted with the tax collectors and the sinners. I'm afraid that we as followers of Jesus Christ are satisfied with the 99 sheep and the nine coins and that we would trade the one loss for the comfort of living life our way and not the way that the kingdom calls us to live. I pray that you and I will commit our lives to be, a, to be diligently pursuing those who have never experienced the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in their lives. And then there's a third thing. As we look at a kingdom pursuit, there's a third characteristic, and I believe that is, it is unconditionally needed by all. It is, the, the grace and go, the gospel of Jesus Christ is unconditionally needed by all people. If you look at the parable of the prodigal son, which we have many times growing up, many of you, you realize what has taken place. This son had basically gone to the father and had said, you are more important to me dead than alive. What you can offer me dead, which would be his inheritance, means more to me than you being here with me. So if you will, just go ahead and cut a check and give me what I want and let me go. So the father does, and, and next thing you know, he is alone without anything. The son, and when it says he went away, it's not just from a sense of wandering away. The, the original text would have, would have been translated into being very spendthrift. He just blew his money constantly. 
So the father uh, lets him have it. He goes, and so he returns to the father only to find the unconditional love of God. There is great freedom through the unconditional love and forgiveness of the father. Great freedom. There is no sin that is a match for the grace of God. No sin. No sin that is a match for the grace of God. But there's a second son in this story. As we see the the radical transformation of one son finding his way back home, there's a second son, and one who to me is probably one of the central characters in the story. Because remind you, he is not only uh, talking to sinners here, Christ is not only talking to sinners who recognize themselves and and, and who who would find themselves parallel with the son, with the lost coin and with the lost sheep, but he was also talking to the Pharisees and he teaches them that you know, he's talking to the 99 and the nine coins and the son who stayed home with the father. And this second son, he, through, as Christ teaches the Pharisees, he teaches them through showing them their similarities to the older brother, the one who had stayed there, who had obeyed the rules, who had done what was right, who had always been right there by the father, but yet was in need of the same transformation as the younger son. I'm terrified that the majority of our churches are full are possibly full of older brothers, and they don't even know that they are. I'm scared to death in our church culture today that there is churches that are full of older brothers who have never recognized that they are. And in this, faith and living for Christ becomes a drudgery. It becomes a task. I'm horrified with the idea that the Scriptures teach us that in the end of time, Jesus will tell many people who did great works in his name to depart. But Father, we did great works in your name. And he says, depart. I never knew you. I'm horrified that many who have no relationship with Jesus Christ, no prayer in their life, no growth in their walk with him, no, no fruit of showing a, a growing disciple, who, they come into our churches week in and week out and they get involved with programs after programs, but yet they are never bothered by the fact that they do not know God. And I'm horrified by that. And we, as his people and his church, must mirror people who were recipients of the love and grace of God. And we must not only take that message to the streets, but we must make sure that those that we are in community with understand what it means to be a follower of Christ and not an involver in a program. That we teach them what it means to love and to know God. I think it's time that the church, that God sent Jesus Christ to die for, that we stop playing games with God and get serious about the mission at hand. There is a real eternal destiny that all will face. And so how can any of us live outside of a kingdom pursuit of life when we individually, specifically know people who do not know Jesus Christ? In this room, we know people who do not know Jesus Christ. There is a real destiny for them. And Jesus is calling us to take the message to them. It's time to stop just reading, God, reading God's word to us on how we are to carry out this mission. It's time that we stop reading that like the newspaper. You know, go to all people, oh, that's interesting. Next page. It's time that we quit reading it like a newspaper or a magazine and start reading it like it is the marching orders for his people to carry his message out into this world. I pray that we may check our hearts to recognize that regardless of whether we see ourselves as a tax collector or a sinner or as a Pharisee, that we are in need of the unconditional love of God.
We all are in need of it. We need a Savior no matter what our condition is. And what I find today, and something that we have to check ourselves on, is that we don't attempt to be a Savior for ourselves. I think there are two ways to attempt to be your own Savior and Lord, and we see it paralleled through this, through this parable. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course. And the other is by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. Both do not find a Savior. In this parable, we see there were two sons, two worlds, but one common need for the same Savior who could not be substituted for. So my prayer for you and for this world is that we can come to a place where we are absolutely consumed with God in our life. And through this, to recognize our absolute calling to leave the comforts of what we know to seek out the one lost sheep and the one lost coin. And to experience life and the completeness and fullness of it the way that Christ created it to be. And I think a lot of times we see and hear what God can do, but yet we don't really believe it. C.S. Lewis once said, I think he says it best when he says, we are often like kids in the ghetto who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We just stay in the midst of the slum that we are in because Jesus promises something beyond our comprehension and we can't grasp it. We can't see the vastness of the promises of God, so we settle for the mundane. We can't possibly believe in a movement that he desires to do among his people, so we become okay with the world going on as is. And it's not okay. May his miraculous work begin in our hearts and then spread into our homes and through our families and into our neighborhoods and all over the city and to the ends of the earth. Jesus has promised it. We recognize through this past four weeks as we have have talked about the kingdom he is bringing back, that he is bringing back to perfection the way he created it to be. And my prayer is that we will embrace it in our hearts and we will spread it with our mouths and that we will encounter people who do not know the truth of the living God or the kingdom that he is building and that we will share that with them. So this morning, it's very simple. We all find ourselves in some situation. For, for in, a, in a group this size, there are probably some who may identify with the, one of the sons, the son who, who had wandered away. And the unconditional love of God is the same. Many of us in this room may identify with the Pharisees or with the son who stayed with the father. And because of our good deeds, we have found ourselves unmoved in our hearts with passion to serve God out of the grace he has shown us. Both situations, both needing the same, ending at the same point, which is at the grace and mercy of God and the calling on us to be the church. So my prayer this morning is that as we spend this time together in prayer and worship, I just want to pray and ask that in your hearts that you analyze where you are. None of us have arrived. All of us have something that God wants to challenge us with this morning. And so I pray that you you just spend time with God this morning in your heart. Search yourself. Find where you are in your heart condition. Line it up with the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus Christ and commit your life to change for his glory. So I want us to bow our heads together and to pray. And as our band comes, I just want us to spend these next few minutes doing a couple of things. For some of you, you may just really need to talk with someone. And I, I, I don't want this to become just a wrap-up time. I want this to become a time where we 
we, we do business with God. And, and if that means you need to talk with someone, it doesn't have to be me or Dan or anybody else. Just find someone that you, you feel comfortable talking with. And let's nail this down. Let's, let's, as a church, commit to being sold out and passionate with the message of God. For those of you who, who, you know, who maybe you've been there for some time, but your passion needs to be renewed, and I pray that you commit that to God this morning as well. But let's just pray and ask that God and the Holy Spirit be our guide this morning. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this time, God. Thank you for this study on the parables and how, God, we know that your parables reveal to some and hide to others. But, God, this morning we have a revelation of the simplicity of, of what your kingdom is like, God. In its complexity, you have delivered it to us very simply that you created us a certain way and we fell away and you offered the provision for, of grace and mercy through the death of Jesus Christ. And through his death and his grace offered to us, we have life, not only in, in, the, in the next life, but in this life. But you've left us with a mission, and that is to go into all nations, baptizing people, teaching them your ways. God, thank you for those that are in this room. And for many, it's preaching to the choir, God, because their convictions and their hearts are to serve. God, their conviction is to abandon all for the sake of your kingdom. And God, I pray that you just encourage them. That in times where that abandonment of the things of life may cost them something, God, may you just allow your peace, God, and your presence to be in their lives and with their families. When it costs their families something, God, that you allow them to, to, to experience your presence, to see the fruit of serving you and their kids, God. And Father, I just pray for this time as we just spend before you. God, as a church, May we covenant together to pray for something amazing to happen in this city. God, not just something amazing to happen within these four walls, God, that we are sitting, sitting inside of, God, but something amazing that looks like a major transformation in the hearts of people in this city. That is our prayer, God. That your movement does not have to happen just through venue, God, but that through all the churches who proclaim your name, God, may hearts be changed. May we see a, a tide turning in the hearts of the people, God, that are the majority are unchurched. And God, may we see them fall in love with you. And God, may it spread like wildfire as we teach of a kingdom with a king who came very simply and who taught downward mobility in this kingdom, God, and taught servanthood. And as we know the scriptures teach that no servant is greater than his master. May we find ourselves humbling ourselves as well. So God, be with this time. Speak to our hearts. Work in our hearts, God. Allow life changes to be made today. And we will give you the glory for it. <clears throat>